Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. My name is Nico Bakulich. And I'm Lauren O'Neill. And let's get biblical. Let's do it. Do you feel that my name is like difficult to pronounce quickly? Lauren O'Neill? Yeah. Does it sound kind of weird? I'm like, I'm Lauren O'Neill? I mean, it, it Lauren sounds... <laughs> O'Neill. Yeah, that's your name. I feel like we should move beyond basics. Okay. I... And the ex-Christian, and I'm reading the New International Version, or NIV, of the Bible. And I don't mean to downplay your struggle, my dear, because your name is hard to pronounce quickly. Well, the main problem is the punctuation, which mm-hmm. breaks like 75% of websites. You know what? It doesn't have enough consonants to anchor it. Mm. It doesn't have the rat-a-tat Cadence. percussive flow. Oh, of a, of a Nico Bakulich. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring this up with my parents. I thought you were going to say your therapist. I'm also going to bring it up with my therapist. (laughs) I'm the non-believing sort of Jew, uh, and I'm reading the NRSV of the Bible. Also, this is not a Christian Bible study podcast. And is not for children. There's always cussing and blasphemy. Well, children should be able to handle a little bit of blasphemy. Children, I'm sure, are sources of blasphemy. I mean... I've never met one personally, so I wouldn't know. (laughs) I never was one, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. But sure, some children might be. Uh, Should we we dive into this Bibble? Yes. Like, what book are we talking about and stuff? This episode is called Zechariah. Zechariah. Mm -hmm. In Hebrew, it's Zechariah. Very close. Very close. It means God remembered. Really? Yeah. That's very appropriate. Yeah. Is that, I mean, like, some of these are wildly inappropriate. Like what? Like my holiday, my holiday. for a guy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was had nothing to do with holidays? Unless you consider spending Sunday in church a holiday. Because it's about rebuilding the temple? I don't know. Uh, anyway, this is taking place uh, at, the, at about the same time as the Book of Haggai. Mm-hmm. Around 520 B.C., uh, remember the Jews have just returned to Judah. Don't ever tell me what to remember, by the way. Um, God remembered that Zechariah <laughs> and the Jews just returned to Judah after the Babylonian exile. Uh, Zerubbabel is the governor and Joshua. Delightfully named Zerubbabel. Yes. Joshua was the high priest uh, and they're starting to rebuild Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. Which the Babylonians destroyed when they took it over. Uh, and what else do you got to know about this book? Uh, it's influenced by Ezekiel. If you uh, remember Ezekiel, it had some very wacky visions. You can go back and listen to our, check out our Ezekiel episode. Yeah, If you check out Zechariah's MySpace page, one of the influences listed will be Ezekiel. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it in turn influenced Revelation, the book of Revelation. Who be, who be in his top eight? <laughs> um, well, one is automatically Tom, right? Tom, yes, but you Tom from MySpace. Him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I never had a MySpace. Okay. I thought I was too good for MySpace because I was on LiveJournal. <laughs> well, history has proven us <laughs> both right. Um, And so basically we've got the first six chapters are like wacky visions. Mm-hmm. Um. And those are probably written pretty close to the actual time that it takes place in. Okay. 
And then the second half is more probably written later. More of your standard priest language kind of. Yeah. And we'll learn more about that hopefully in the second half of this podcast. Uh, but for now, let's let's dive in, okay. shall we? Yeah. So chapter one starts with God telling Zechariah that, quote, the Lord was very angry with your forefathers, but if you turn to me, I'll return to you. Why was he mad at the forefathers? Oh, I think it was a little thing called worshiping those sweet ass idols. I think it was worshiping idols. Mm -hmm. Hanging out with the other gods, you know. And uh, why is he why is he mad now? He's uh, mm, worshiping idols. No. Oh shit! <laughs> As we learned in Haggai, yep. there's a new reason for him to be mad, which is that they haven't built the temple yet. But that's not really exciting, and it's not really like a a big plot point in this book. So after that little intro, we get a very long six-chapter vision mm -hmm. um, where an angel. But it's not it's not a narrative vision. It's like. No, it's vignettes. like a bunch of. Yeah, it's a bunch of episodic sort of. Like sort of visions. Pulp fiction. <laughs> it's like coffee and cigarettes. Um, and so an angel is going to going to guide Zechariah through all these weird uh, visions. So the first one is that there's a man among the myrtle trees. Excuse me? Yes, that's what it's titled, A Man Among the Myrtle Trees. And Zechariah sees a man on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and there's all these red, brown, and white horses behind him, and the angel tells Zechariah that these horses have been sent to go throughout the earth, and they found the whole world at rest and in peace, which I don't get because the rest of the vision is about how, like, the day of the Lord is near and, like, the final battle is going to okay. happen. Well, let's start on this because these visions don't make any sense, these visions, right? Yeah, well, they don't. I mean, let's be real, they don't. I mean, I, I like that they're vague. I mean, they're supposed to be vague so that they can be, <laughs> so that they can be interpreted, right? That's the point of oracles is that they're, they're they general enough, enough yeah. that you could apply them to almost any scenario. Sure. But, and we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure, uh -huh. but why this in the Bible? Like, why the why these, like, fortune cookie shit in the Bible? Um, they're like if, like, they're like a fortune cookie in a dream. <laughs> or like a, an acid trip, right? Like, they're... So, why did, I mean, but that doesn't really a answer the question. No, because I don't have an answer to the question. What? Look, I'm sorry that I can't answer all of the universe's questions for you. This is a very specific one. You don't need to answer all the universe's but questions. But I don't know anything about the Bible or God, <laughs> so. I think you're doing great, though. Oh, thank you, baby. I think you're doing great, too. I think we're making a great team. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, They are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. These are th Those are the trees. Uh, those are the trees. The I'm so obsessed with fucking myrtle trees these days. <laughs> Everywhere I look, it's myrtle trees I'm left. I'm sick of it, frankly. Myrtle trees right. No, I'm talking about the horses. Why are the horses the ones whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth? You know, I don't know, um, but we're going to see that later in Zechariah, and we're going to see it in Revelation. Oh, wow. You're giving me spoilies. I'm sorry. Sorry about the spoilies. Uh, the next part of the vision is for horns. I do not mean that it's for horny people, mm -hmm. although they might enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Or I can't if say. like H-O-R-N is some sort of 
acronym like heavy or random nice guys heavy or random nice guys mm-hmm. i think that's horns with a n- no nice guy is one word okay that's wrong but these four horns is it though are like uh battle trumpets the, the four horns are like battle trumpets yeah battle trumpets something with which I'm sure all of us are familiar from yeah. our day-to-day lives. Yeah, battle trumpets. As I mean, they're not like goat horns or whatever. They're like fucking... Yep, we all got it. And I don't know, that's like the four nations that God's going to destroy in revenge for them destroying Judah or whatever. It doesn't matter. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, the next part of the vision, he sees a man, Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line. To I like measure this. Jerusalem. This is just like Ezekiel, right? Yeah, it's very yeah. There was measuring measuring in Ezekiel as well. For some reason, the angel that's guiding the vision leaves, and a different angel comes in, mm-hmm. and he says, "Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because there will be so many people in it that they won't fit inside the walls, and uh, God Himself quote will be a wall of fire around it." Hmm crazy thing that one verse gave us both the martin lawrence special run tell that mm-hmm. and the famous computer hacking term firewall it's... the bible is such a rich font of knowledge well i mean it it is but you're wrong so anyway uh now fu- the vision <laughs> it's funny that it's in that vision <laughs> it seems like a wall of fire around your city is supposed to be a good thing uh when I mean, I would associate that. I mean, like, where's that fire going to go? It just stays because it's like holy and shit. So it just keeps out the bad guys. It's going to burn that city up. No, it's in control. So that's exactly what a fire that's out of control would say. Mm, we're not talking about a fire. We're talking about God, <laughs> baby. Anyway, now the vision starts getting a little juicier <laughs> because... A juicy vision. <laughs> you know, when you bite into a vision. Mm-hmm. And it's like super and the juice juicy. just drips down your chin. Next thing Zechariah sees is Joshua standing before God and Satan. Okay, so wait, remind me, who is this Joshua? Yes, Joshua is the, the current high priest of Judah, um, of Jerusalem. And uh, so, like, they've just returned from the Babylonian exile. Mm -hmm. So this guy is now in charge of, like, the church. And we it's transliterated as Joshua here. Mm -hmm. But in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which is also Jesus's name. So this is... The original Jesus. The original Jesus. (laughs) And so he is now in this vision, Zechariah, seeing him... Um, before God and Satan, Satan, quote, standing at God's right side to accuse him. Mm-hmm. We've got the accusing angel, Hasatan. Um, and you can understand why Christians might find this passage important. Uh, with Jesus standing before God and Satan, even though in reality, I assume it's like Joshua's like a stand in for the general state of religious observance or the, pri- or or, the priestly class yeah, yeah. Or, like, or like faith yeah. at this moment in time in jerusalem but so he's standing there and god says the lord rebuke you satan and he says is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire i guess meaning 
that like his holiness saved him from the Babylonian exile or just bad shit in general. He's just lucky. He's a lucky guy. Um, well, he is wearing filthy rags. Mm-hmm. And so Zechariah's a helper angel, his his angel guide, his celestial bellhop. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I got that from a sermon that I heard in church when I was like 10. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> See, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. <laughs> Your love of the of the spoken and written word it, it came from those sermons when you were so young see you owe your whole life to god yeah definitely a hundred percent so zechariah's uh, helper angel says to uh get rid of joshua's filthy rags that he's wearing and replace them with clean clothes including a clean turban because mm. he's the high priest so he has this ridiculous get up that we learned about in the torah yeah he's got like a magic breastplate yeah and he's got like with fucking secret pockets yeah, for secret magic pockets dice. Yeah, pockets for magic dice. And like there's like weird gold chains connecting everything. And it's got a, like a blue and gold tunic. Yeah. That's sick. It's kind of baller. Yeah. And so this angel says, I've taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Again, you can see why this happening to someone named Jesus uh, might be relevant to Christians later I've never on. heard of him. Um, and then God basically tells Joshua in Zechariah's vision that he's going to be put in charge of everything because he's, quote, the branch with a capital B. Mm. Like, you the branch. Like Michelle Branch. Michelle Branch. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about her in many years. I'm sure she's doing great. <laughs> shout, out, did... shout out to all our listeners who are <laughs> Michelle Branch. <laughs> she definitely listens to this podcast. Remember she did that one song with uh, with Santana? Yeah, on that same uh, cover album along with Smooth. Yeah. Yeah. Featuring Rob Thomas. Mm-hmm. Well, those were simpler times. <laughs> In any case. I hope oh, we've the all other learned thing... our lesson. Whoa, whoa, okay. <laughs> the other thing in this in this part of the vision is that God sets a stone in front of Joshua. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, like, look at this awesome stone. And it says, Quote, there are seven eyes on that one stone. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's crazy because usually you only get like two, maybe three eyes on a single <laughs> stone. But this one has seven. And then that got me to thinking about how you would arrange seven eyes. Oh, did it? Yeah. I thought of a pretty baller arrangement. You thought of a baller arrangement for seven eyes on a stone. Yeah. Would you care to go into detail? I might be weird. I don't know. No. Um, this is totally normal. So you set the first set of three in a triangle. Okay. Uh, yeah. Lower left, lower right, and yeah. up, up I got above. It. Everyone knows what a triangle is. Well, you could ar- you could orient a triangle in many different ways. <sighs> then the second... Is it isosceles? Uh, is it equilateral? Equilateral. Okay. Then there's another smaller equilateral triangle Whoa. where... But uh, flipped upside down. Okay. So the point is down at the bottom in between the first two eyes. Wow. And then the... Uh, top two points are between the other legs of the of the first triangle. This is really scintillating. This is great radio. Then you drop the seventh eye uh-huh. right in the center of that. So thing. you're describing like a Jewish star with a, or I'm sorry, a sheriff's badge with an eye in the middle? No, 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 no. Because the second triangle is small enough to fit inside the first triangle. Oh, okay. Where the points are upon the lines. Um, I'm of gonna the first say triangle. that I don't care and nobody cares. What? 
I'm sorry. I think I'm doing a great job. Okay. You are. You Who's know, you're with doing me a great out job. there. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Nobody clap. Moving on to the next part of the vision. Uh, I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> Zechariah sees like a, a menorah mm-hmm. between two olive trees. And that somehow means that like uh, the governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest Joshua are sent by God to like make everything right and rebuild the temple. At the beginning of this at the beginning of this vision though, I have to point out that his angel is being a real asshole. Oh my god, how? The angel who talked with me came again and wakened me as one is wakened from sleep. He said to me, "What do you see?" Oh yeah, well he fell asleep in the Yo, middle I'm of the vision. Fucking sleeping, bro. Well, why do you fall asleep in the middle of the vision? I think the angel's in the right here. If you're seeing like holy symbolism of god mm-hmm. you shouldn't fall asleep that's seven eyes in that's a fucked up perfectly designed triangle pyramid thing. triangle pyramid thing yeah totally i haven't worked everyone cares thing. about that <laughs> um and the weird thing is that so zerubbabel and joshua are both referred to as like anointed ones mm-hmm. in this passage and that's like what the word Messiah right. means and and the word Christ means. But oh, I thought Christ meant king. No, it means it means anointed one. Oh, okay. Messiah. Well, there you go. So Chris T. Yeah, Chris T. On the one hand, you can see how this could easily be interpreted as like pointing to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like there's not supposed to be two messiahs. <laughs> like that's a very main thing of Jesus, is that there's only one. <laughs> Yeah, plus there was that other dude that... Uh... Oh, Cyrus. Mm-hmm. The Persian king. That's right. Yeah. Who is the king of Persia and who they're under right now. But but he's not mentioned in this book. He's not, but previously he has been... He was, he's been referred to as, as the Messiah. Messiah. Yeah. A Messiah. Yeah, a Messiah. I mean, if it's just one who is anointed, I mean, they annoy people all the time. Yeah, well, you can anoint anyone. Yeah. Just pour some olive oil on your head. You're the Messiah. Do you want me to get you a Messiah? I can get you a Messiah right now. <laughs> I can get you a Messiah. I can anoint any, any clown off the street. So the next part of the vision is titled uh, The Flying Scroll. Which the Flying also, Squirrel? The Flying Scroll. Mm, you had something there for a second, oh. but you're losing it. Oh, I thought The Flying Scroll was like, I was going to use that as my trip hop alias. The Flying Scroll? Yeah. Flying Scroll? That's not bad. It's a little derivative (laughs) but the flying squirrel is much better you're right no i mean that's awful (laughs) but so in any case it reminds uh, me of rocky and i love that little dude you love that little dude Mm -hmm. in any case uh zek sees a flying squirrel that's that's 30 feet long and 15 feet wide and the angels uh the angel says that it's quote a curse going out over the whole land it's a big ass scroll, baby. It's a large curse. Why is it flying? A, a swole curse. They should hop on it and ride it. Bulbous curse. What? I don't know. Next up, measuring basket. <laughs> Maybe the best oracle in this set of bizarre visions. Oh, really? I mean, just in terms of general incomprehensibility. <laughs> so here's what happens in this part. And mysteriosity. Yeah. There is a measuring basket, which I guess it's like, you know, you would you would fill it with grain and then you would know like that's one ephah of grain or whatever. Okay. Ephod. Uh, no, that's a piece of clothing. Holy yeah, shit. get it together. I'm sorry. And the angel says, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. And now I'm going to read directly from the text. 
It says, Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, the angel said, This is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. No comment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very strange. Moving on. And gross, but I don't want to move on quite yet because I want to say immediately after that, for some reason, despite obviously the fact that the entire lesson has been imparted by that bizarre incident with the basket and the woman. <laughs> Was that like Steve Harvey saying woman? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You haven't watched enough Family Feud, clearly. Probably not. Then, uh, let me read from the text here. Oh, you're going to read from the text. Immediately after that, it says, Then I looked up and saw two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. Very few women have wings. (laughs) Unless you're talking about Farrah Fawcett when she had the feathered hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, the feathered hair. Mm -hmm. She could have probably flown a little with that hair. like. I mean, she flew... All the way into America's heart. Oh, you're right. You're right. She flew onto the screen. And then right off of it And then right off of it. (laughs) The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and sky. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared... They will set the basket down there on its base. There you go. Like, I feel like <laughs> we're in a Yodorovsky movie. Yeah, here. totally. People are, like, taking arbitrary but obviously very symbolic actions. But I think that Yodorovsky is probably, like, influenced by the Bible, right? Obviously, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Holy Mountain. Yeah. With the alchemist and yeah. everything. Check it out, people. If you've never seen any, any Yodorovsky movies. <laughs> like, you- you can skip it, honestly. <laughs> but if you can see it in a theater with a crowd, I'd recommend it. It's weird as heck. Weird as heck. It's weird as heck. That's balls. what they put on the VHS box. They should. Mm-hmm. Rated W for weird as heck. Mm-hmm. So, so then we get some more colored horses, and they're going in the four compass. Points. So, like, the black horses are going north and the white horses are going west. Uh, and then the last bit of the vision is um, is Zechariah seeing Joshua, again, the original Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, receiving a crown because he is the branch. So that's that's the first part. That's chapters one through six. Uh, chap- you the branch now, don't Chapter seven, I don't want to get into much, into too much detail, but I do want to read this one verse uh, very pointedly at the Republican Party. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Uh, and then chapters 8 through 11 are like pretty standard, like uh, like the rest of the stuff that we've seen in the Minor Prophets. God is going to, you know, he destroyed Jerusalem, but now he's going to bless Jerusalem mm-hmm. and he's going to bless Judah and destroy all their enemies. Mm-hmm. Um we don't super have a lot of time to get into that, but um, it's pretty traditional stuff. There's uh, definitely some good lines. There are some great. There's some great lines in it. I want to check in briefly in chapter nine and point out that the that the oracle in chapter nine it gets a little poetic, mm-hmm. which is nice, mm-hmm. but it checks in with some evil giant news. Oh, 
And I'm, I'm always looking out for that evil giant yeah. stuff because that's one of my favorite parts about the Bible is, you know, talk the about fuck the, angels the fuck and the angels evil giants. At, fuck angels created evil giants. Yeah. And then like some people want to talk about it. Some people don't. Some people don't even want to acknowledge the evil fuck angels exist. I agree. Even though it really plugs a lot of plot holes in the yeah. whole, in the whole, in Mr. Bibble. Definitely. It plugs Mr. Bibble's plot holes. Please stop talking about Mr. Bibble that way. This is a family <laughs> podcast. This oracle says it's, you know, it's being very weighty, very prophetic. And it says, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mongrel people shall settle in Ashdod. Mm. And I will make an end of the pride of Philistia or Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. And that's, first of all, some fucking bloodthirsty stuff, Mm -hmm. which I thought we were supposed to be done away with with that because, you know, we were supposed to render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, etc. Another quote from this book. Mm -hmm. I'm using the text against itself. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Ashdod is one of the places mentioned earlier on in the book where there be giants. Oh. So that mongrel people is the... (laughs) First of all, it seems like extremely offensive to even say the words mongrel and people next to each other. I agree. But so you're saying they're they're mongrels between humans and fuck angels. Well, not, I mean, not I between think, like Israelites and Canaanites. I think by this time all the all the giants are dead. Okay. I think the last giant died earlier in the book because they made mention of it that the like we killed off the last of the giants. That was when Israel moved back into the Holy Land. Right, right. So that but, was like in the book of Joshua or whatever. Yeah. Right? But that just reminded me of it, even if it's just like a slam on Ashdod for some reason, <laughs> uh-huh. like some reason that I don't get. Uh-huh. And apologies to all of our Ashdodian listeners. That it's still called Ashdod. It's a city in Jer- in uh, Israel. Well, to this day. Regardless, I was on I was on Evil Giant Watch, um, and that just reminded Dot me. Net. Evil Giant Watch dot net. Mm-hmm. You better be careful. If we're going to own that domain name. <laughs> Um, and then in, in the last few chapters, we get uh, another vision about the apocalypse coming, mm-hmm. like the day of the Lord coming. Um, it's not, you know, super different from the rest of the minor prophets. There are some good quotes, though. Um, I like in chapter 12, it says, when the day of the Lord comes, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Um, again, you can see how that's going to point to Jesus mm-hmm. later on. They didn't set up the the pierced one in any way, did they? No, I don't even understand what it's supposed to mean. I looked for it because I, I like got to that part and I was like, oh, they must have introduced the idea of like piercing your leader or piercing I think it just someone. means like injured or like attacked in battle with an arrow or a spear or whatever. So is that is that like is that the Israelites shooting down their their faith with their idolatry or I don't know honestly I don't know. Um, chapter thirteen has the best quote, mm. which is about how like all the prophets who weren't really following God, like when the day of the Lord comes, that they're going to be like ashamed of themselves. Um, and it says, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment. He will say. I'm not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. (laughs) Uh, Nothing to see here. Yeah. 
I'm a farmer. I'm just a farmer. That's what a farmer would say. And then it's like uh, when people ask him where he got his wounds, because I guess a false prophet is going to do like self-flagellating stuff. They're going to wear a hair shirt, as it says in my version yeah, yeah. of the Bible. Um, and then it's like, oh, I got these wounds at a friend's house. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that, that sounds normal. I, I also get wounds at my friend's house, obviously. Well, I mean, if you're into it. I mean, fair enough. Enthusiastic consent. <laughs> and then the uh, the last chapter, the last chapter really gets into like foreshadowing the stuff that's going to show up in Revelation. I mean, obviously that's not how it was conceived of when it was written, but mm-hmm. from from the perspective of the year 2017, um, that's what it looks like. So we've got like... Oh, way to date the podcast, oh, baby. Oh, shit. Now it's not going to be... Timeless. timeless piece of art anymore speaking of which damn daniel <laughs> back, back at, at it, it again, again. <laughs> so chapter 14 we've got you know like a final battle uh we've got weird natural phenomena like mm-hmm. it's not going to be daytime or nighttime like the water's going to flow the wrong way mm. um and we've got a real cool plague that's going to hit the enemies of judah where uh cool yeah their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths that's gross on that day a great panic from the lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of a neighbor and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other that's the worst i like how it also adds at the end oh also um this is also going to happen to all like their camels and goats and stuff Mm mm-hmm so sucks for everybody and also their animals and the very end is like and anyone who survives better start celebrating sukkot because god is gonna he's all about those huts he's baby. gonna like put this plague back on anyone who doesn't celebrate sukkot and it doesn't mention any other holidays doesn't mention like getting circumcised or any of the other that like, part was added by the sukkot council yeah exactly it's just like yeah. you better get in that fucking hut okay <laughs> That chapter is titled, and some chapters have titles in, in different versions. That chapter is titled Future Warfare and Final Victory. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Are you sure that's not Alex Jones's <laughs> website? Future Future Warfare and Final Victory? I don't want to think about that. <laughs> well, uh we have we have covered the entire book of Zechariah. Shall we take a break? I think it's probably about time to take a break. I think when so we too. come back from a break, we're going to have a conversation with oh my god, a learned person. Oh my god, about actual academic details. We're gonna get real knowledge on this podcast. We have went out into the world, listeners. We've gone out. We have done up into the world. We have goed out. Mm-hmm. We've get gone out into the world and found somebody who knows something about this. A real expert. And in a couple of minutes, you're going to hear all about it. Well, like one minute. We'll see. Okay. Time will tell. Okay. Bye. Hello.
Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nico. And we are talking about the book of Zechariah. And uh, we wanted to learn more about this book. So we decided to call up an expert, an actual expert. We got a real smart person on this show who actually knows stuff. He has an MA in religion from Yale. He's a third year PhD student at Brown University studying ancient Israelite religion and the Hebrew Bible. Uh, He studies the social anthropology and history of the ancient Mediterranean region during the first millennium BCE. Rob Casho, welcome to the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Rob. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, glad to be here. So just briefly, uh, we ask all our guests, uh, and so we'll ask you because the the way we do it, (laughs) what's uh, what's your religious background? Uh, So I was raised uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, Christian tradition. I uh, grew up, we didn't really attend church much, but um wasn't until my teenage years that I maybe entered into um, being a practitioner of religion, and mm-hmm. that uh, was in a, evan- a conservative evangelical church. And since then, I've gone from conservative evangelical churches to uh, all kinds of different denominations within Protestantism, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian. Uh, and now I've probably I've definitely moved away from conservative evangelicalism. And if I were to pick a place to attend uh, church and do religion, I'd pro- I would definitely would still say I'm in the Christian tradition, but it would be a liberal Episcopalian church, or I might even come full circle and go to a Roman Catholic church. Uh, wow, so you've, to... you've seen everything. <laughs> a little bit of everything, at least within the Christian tradition. Um and uh, I have many friends who are in the Jewish tradition, so I appreciate that tradition as well, and it's influenced me. Uh, but I haven't uh, gotten into Luther- uh, Lutheranism, so that's one thing that I haven't yet. <laughs> oh, well, one of these days you'll get there. <laughs> yeah, sure. there's, there's so many years in the future. <laughs> I have a question for you. Um, so we talk about the Bible, I guess, a fair amount, um, but, I have, but you study it academically. So do you mind explaining like what it means to to be a biblical scholar or a scholar of the of the Hebrew Bible, I'm a little curious. Yeah, there there are two two ways of approaching it. One is to approach it and study it, the Bible academically, but still with some sort of theology in view. And here, you know, you have divinity schools mm-hmm. at universities who still use the Bible, study it academically, but uh, academically, but still think of it in a theological way, and they find it useful. They call call it and label it scripture, and it informs their life, and they uh, are in conversation with it as they consider things from political policies to how they live their life ethically. But then uh, where I am located is more in a non-divinity setting, uh, university sort of education, and here we study the Bible purely historically. Mm. Theology and practical applications for today are not conversations we have, and they're irrelevant to what our pursuits are. And the main difference is that we are just using the text as data to reconstruct history. And in particular, we use the Hebrew Bible to reconstruct the history of ancient Israel and ancient Judah. And your specialty is... Um, texts from the Persian period, so specifically Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and and Ezra and Nehemiah. What drew you to these books 
specifically? That's a good question. Uh, you know, when you grow up studying, or when you grow up, when you when you um, get into college and you begin pursuing the study of the Bible and Israel historically, you know, you wonder how people latch on to certain texts. Um, for me, though, um, I do like the visions. You know, there there's something about the visions. They're very esoteric. They're elusive, um, mystical, hard to interpret. And when you're talking about reconstructing a history of ancient Judah and using visions as data, they're quite a challenge there. So let's let's talk some more about the visions. Okay. Um, can you give us some context, Rob, about these visions? Like, why was this the format that that prophets used at this time? Um, what is like? Why is this the form of communication? What does that do for the prophets? There is no consensus on why a prophet would use visions. Um, there are arguments from simply stating that, well, the prophet saw some sort of thing and he recorded it, to this is totally made up um, and the prophet is just kind of being manipulative here. He saw nothing. Um, but that explanation doesn't exactly say why. I'm actually working on some ideas right now why the prophets might have used the visions. Can you tell um, us more if I about can back up just a, Yeah, yeah. And if I can back up just a little bit to provide a context of what's going on, and you may have already discussed this at the first half hour. We probably there. didn't. Yeah, um, probably not. <laughs> well, well, when we think about uh, the return of the Judeans to Jerusalem, we have Judeans, exiled Judeans coming from Babylon. Now, archaeologically speaking, the evidence we have suggests that this return was very small. Mm. There, when we compare uh, mapping of the land in uh, Judah and Jerusalem um, during the 6th century before the Common Era, we do not see a great influx in population. So, first off, the, account, the accounts in Ezra and Nehemiah and elsewhere that talk about the return of Judeans are greatly exaggerated. There was no great return. Uh, this return happened on a very small scale. Um, so with that in mind, you have a small group of people sanctioned by Babylon, uh, or sanctioned by Persia right. uh, at the time, and they're returning. And it's been 50 years, give or take. And what you have is that you have these uh, Persian-sanctioned Judeans who are going in to set up a government, a temple, a system to return home. But there's people already there. And the people already there haven't seen these exiled Judeans probably in their whole entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. They might have heard about the, they of course would have heard about the ex exile through oral transmission. Maybe there were some elderly folks that were still around who had seen the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. But they've gotten on with their life and have done their own thing. They have their own religion, their own version of Yahwism, their own way of uh, making sacrifices, etc. In comes this Persian-sanctioned group of people, and they basically come in and take over. They say how it's going to be, and they say who's boss. And in a way, this is a great violence to the people already living in Judea. Interesting. Now, <clears throat> there's a problem, though, because the people who returned were few in number. And 
because of that, they're treading on thin ice. They have to tread quite delicately. Uh, they don't. They can't do physical violence to these people uh, because one, they may be outnumbered, and two, they really need the people already in the land. They need their labor, and they need their economic support. And we can look at texts that suggest that in a second. But with that said, uh, kind of, what kind of plan are they going to have, or strategy, or tactics are they going to have to uh, initiate their program and solidify it? And here I think uh, there's two ways they're doing it. Um, one is instead of, uh, and this is the major thing I'm exploring right now, and it's not in the literature, but it's my suggestion is one, instead of doing physical forms of violence to as an act of persuasion, they are creating visions where violence is performed in visions uh, as a way to show that Yahweh means business. Uh, there's threats of violence going on in the visions, uh, but yet it is not physical violence itself. So in a way, it provides a sort of buffer to back away from doing any physical violence, but still kind of putting the fear of God literally uh, <laughs> in people. Um, and secondly, as you know, you have these prophetic oracles and you have um, oracles even uh, well, oracles in Haggai, but oracles also in Zechariah that try to interpret the vision. And these all, of course, are a way of legitimizing um, the, the Persian-sanctioned Judeans program. It's a way to legitimize their program by saying Yahweh has commissioned us. Yahweh has given us oracles. Yahweh has given us visions. Um, and so those are a few of the reasons that I think we're dealing with visions here uh, instead of just plain, direct rhetoric that's you know rebuking people of the land. Uh, we don't have physical means of persuasion. Uh, so the, prop, the prophet here has been qu quite tactical, mm. I think. Using, using the mysticism as like a lever in place of exactly of physical or economic power to try to help reestablish exactly. the temple. That's, that's interesting. Do you have yeah. um, like a favorite vision or one that you think is particularly interesting to talk about? I, I mean, I like the uh, fourth vision, Joshua and Satan, and I like the fifth vision, or excuse me, the, the, um, the seventh vision. Of the woman in the basket. That's those were our favorites too. Yeah, those were our favorites. <laughs> what a coincidence! Yeah. <laughs> um, can you? Yeah, they're good visions for sure. Can you tell us more about either one of those? Like what? Like what's okay. going on? <laughs> like help. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the third vision, <clears throat> or excuse me, in the fourth vision, chapter three, you have. Uh, the prophet being shown the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of Yahweh and the Satan standing at his right hand to accuse them. Now we should note that the Satan in the Hebrew Bible is not the Satan of the New Testament. Right. Yet there is some sort some sort of there is something wrong with his accusation, so because he is rebuked in verse two, right? Right. Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Um, so what we have is Satan and many people, Satan accusing Joshua over something. We don't know what the charges are, but many people here, uh, have speculated that the, that Satan here and his accusations are 
charges and accusations of the Judeans who live in the land, um, perhaps not the exiled Judeans, but the Judeans who are already living there. Uh, they suppose that these accusations are coming from them to contest Joshua's legitimacy as high priest. Uh-huh. Uh, we have Joshua dressed with filthy clothes. Um, you know, this language of filthy mm-hmm. is really tied up into many people think um, the fact that the temple wasn't initiated um, for 70 some years. And so the priest has not had his sinatone for. Mm. Moreover, the temple itself is impure, it's polluted, it's become common, and there's a real question of, one, whether Joshua can even perform duties because he's just filthy as is. He's basically common as is every other person. Mm. Uh, That's one way to go with it. Another way to go with it is to suggest that Joshua, the people found some sort of character flaw or moral flaw in Joshua, and filthy clothes are representative of that. We don't exactly know. However, when we look at verse 2 and it says, Is this not the man, a brand plucked from fire? The language here does echo a verse in, earlier in the book of the Twelve, uh, the Twelve Minor Prophets, and it does seem to have some resonance with the exile and the return from the exile. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the uh, prophet here is trying to justify Joshua as a high priest, right? He's trying to legitimize his program. If there's people that have doubts and objections, he wants to answer those objections. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you continue, we talk about the incoming of the servant, the branch. Um, And this branch is almost certainly a Davidide, a Davidic ruler, and there is some debate whether this is an indefinite, undefined future Davidic ruler mm-hmm. or most probably just Zerubbabel. I see. And so this is a promise that Zerubbabel either is going to come, this vision could have been written before the return, or perhaps simply that Zerubbabel is already there, but things are going to happen where Zerubbabel is going to raise up as the Davidic king for the people of, be raised up as the Davidic king for the people of Judah. So in short, I think that's my general understanding of the text. If that makes sense, feel free to follow up questions. Honestly, that makes a ton of, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's like kind of stuff that we're like, we're like headed in that direction, but we don't have enough information to get there. So it's really (laughs) great to hear you like give us that information. Um, sure. So, z- you say it's Zerubbabel. That's right. Okay. <laughs> we weren't. How do you say? We it? weren't sure. We were saying Zerubbabel. Well, that that would uh, that would probably be a good way to say it in Hebrew, actually. Oh, okay. So you're you're fine by saying Zerubbabel. <laughs> I speak a little Hebrew, so I think that's what I was I was going with. But um, exactly. <laughs> so Zerubbabel and um, Joshua are kind of referred to as anointed ones. Mm. And at the end of Zechariah, you also get a lot of stuff about the apocalypse and and some sort of messianic visions. 
Can you tell us, like, we're reading all this through through the lens of a lot of uh, cultural baggage about, like, what the apocalypse is. You know, like, because we're interpreting it from pop culture representations like the Left Behind series and, and just the general cultural dominance of Christianity, which obviously had not, didn't exist yet when this was written. Can you give us a better idea about, like, what this kind of messianic and apocalyptic stuff meant at the time to the people writing it or person writing it? Uh, let me first start just by saying that Zechariah 9 to 14 um, is held to be much later than Zechariah 1 to 8 by most. Well, according to the notes in my Bible, <laughs> the scholarly notes in my NIV, <laughs> it says there is no compelling reason to question the unity of the book. <laughs> just thought I'd update you on that. <laughs> That kind of rhetoric mostly comes out of uh, those who have edited a Bible or study Bibles, um, who have editors and translators who work in seminaries. I see. And for some reason, the confessional world is very, very much opposed to pseudepigraphical mm -hmm. authorship, uh, authorship of an author that's not actually by the author. Um, but when you read Zechariah 1 to 8 and then you get to 9 to 14, it's certainly a whole new world. But with that said, let us think about ideological shifts, right? So it does seem, as we talked about, that Zerubbabel from Haggai 2, 20 to 23, Zechariah 3, 8, and Zechariah 6, 9 to, uh, 9 to 15 is the expected Davidic heir who will reign on the throne. He is the David-eyed. Uh, who will become king over Israel, and Yahweh will restore Israel to its former glory. And in view there is the glory days of Solomon and David. Um, and it'll be like even better than before, mm -hmm. right? Now, there's no sense of finality there. We wouldn't call the visions of one Zechariah 1-8 apocalyptic. Right. These are just prophetic visions. There's no eschatology. There's a restoration. Uh, Zerubbabel or the Tzemach or the branch, whatever you want to call this person, he is not a Messiah, right? The word Messiah is never used, mm -hmm. Mashiach in Hebrew. But there is an expectation that a Davidic ruler would return to the throne. Now, 9 to 14, it does get a little bit weird. It gets a little bit different, right? But let me highlight the main ideological difference. And this contributes to why people think 9 to 14 is much later than the visions of Zechariah 1 to 8. If you look at chapter 14, verse 9, we, sh we need to ask, who will be king over the earth? Will it be David? Will it be the David I know? Uh, chapter 14, verse 9 says, And the Lord will become king over the whole earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Most here think that the prophets and priests and people of Ju uh, Judah, or at least the people who um, are the people whose voice are reflected in this text, have given up on the hope of David. Hmm. David won't be on the throne. Yahweh is not going to raise up a Davidic heir. Rather, Yahweh Himself will be king over Israel, and that's how they cope with the failed expectations of restoration of David. Uh, having an heir on the throne. So it didn't work out for Zerubbabel. He, we don't know what happened to him. 
and it didn't seem to be working out. It doesn't seem like anybody's going to be raised up anytime soon. So it seems they've given up on all hope, and they just essentially resort to saying Yahweh will be king. He will be the king, not an actual person. Makes sense. That's quite different than what we have earlier in chapter 1 to 8. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, you have definitely contradiction of voices here. Now, what were some of the other thoughts or questions you had about 9 to 14 uh, Um, and the apocalypse, since we're kind of on that note? Yeah, just like... um... I don't know when when I think of like the biblical apocalypse, I'm thinking of like all the pop cultural baggage from the last, you know, 2000 years. Um, And that's not what these people had in mind when they were writing this um, because none of that had happened yet. So I guess my question is like, what did it mean to them when they were writing it as opposed to now when we're like, Oh yeah, you know, people are going to get raptured and they're just going to disappear or whatever. Right. Yeah, and to in fairness, uh with pop culture and their understanding of the apocalypse, they are interpreting biblical texts that have weird imagery and they take it literally and so they kind of create this system. And that kind of interpretation and way in doing things in modern times is actually not quite different than what we have in ancient days, Mm. but just not in the time of Zechariah. But by the time we get to, say, the book of Daniel, and we get into the 2nd century, 3rd century, 2nd century, 1st century before the Common Era, Mm -hmm. apocalypses are emerging everywhere, and they are quite weird. They talk about the end of the world, and fire, and brimstone, and uh, people dying, and Yahweh slaying all these people that are not followers of him and resurrections and judgments and all this crazy stuff, much of what we see in the modern day. Um, but that's not quite Zechariah. But we do have that in, say, one, first Enoch. Uh, but right, for Zechariah, however, the question is, what are they expecting? And I think chapter 8 is a good glimpse into what they're looking for here. What are you looking for in the end of the world? <laughs> I need an end of the world that works for me. <laughs> so if we look at chapter 8, first one and following, you know, I mentioned the return of the king, right? Zerubbabel and the priests, and they'll be the temple will be established. They'll be reigning in perfect harmony. So we, you've dealt with those passages, Zechariah uh, 6, 9, 15, mm-hmm. and Zechariah 3, 7, 8, 9, 10. But here we have a little bit more of an expansion of what that's going to look like. Um, verse 2, thus says Yahweh, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So this is temple language, right? Mm-hmm. The temple is not established, so Yahweh is not there. Jerusalem will be called a faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts shall be called the holy mountain. And this t- speaks to the prestige of Jerusalem, its centrality, uh, Yahweh dwelling on that mountain and it being a holy mountain. Thus says Yahweh, old men and women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says Yahweh, even though it seems impossible to this remnant of people, 
in these days, should it be impossible to me. Thus says Yahweh, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to live in Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. And so we have this utopian vision of all the scattered Judeans returning to Zion, to Jerusalem, with great prosperity, boys and girls playing in the streets, which suggests protection. There's no threat of war. People are playing in the streets. Men and women are growing old. There's no war. There's wealth. There's health. There's prosperity. Um, and really, in other texts, too, you have all the nations coming to worship Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So in a way, there's a move to seeing Yahweh as the premier God for all nations to come to and pay homage. Mm-hmm. And so this is a pretty good depiction of what it looks like, what the eschatology of Zechariah looks like. Mm. That does seem a little less fiery brimstone-y. <laughs> Much less, I'd say. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Part of it seems to be based on, you know, reasonable speed limits in residential areas, <laughs> yes. clear signage so the kids can play <laughs> in the street. A good social security exactly. program. You got a jungle gym. <laughs> jungle gym outside of the temple. About green spaces in the city. That's what it's about. Yeah. Nico, do you have any more questions? I don't. I I mean, I think that's about our time for 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 this section. But I just got to say, it's it's really refreshing and uh, incredible to hear someone talk about this that actually knows what they're talking about. It's <laughs> like we just we just jibber jabber and make shit up and read things on the internet. So it's uh it's uh it's great to hear fully formed thoughts about yeah. this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a work in progress, as you can. Suggest. I mean, I'm wrestling with this just like you are. Uh, we can take stabs at it and give it our best shot. But uh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure uh, to be a part of the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Is there anywhere that people can find your writing for public, or do you, do you have a, an internet presence that you'd like to advertise? Yeah. So to access my work, um, one can feel free to look me up on the academia.edu website brown.academia.edu slash Robert C. Casho, K-A-S-H-O-W. Awesome. So that's awesome. brown.academia.edu slash Robert C. Casho. And there you'll find a few articles on Zechariah, several reviews, uh, book reviews of books written on the 12 Minor Prophets and other, some other book reviews as well. And I'll be updating it with more to come in the near future. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and we will see you on the internet. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, after that, I think there's only one thing left. And by one thing, I mean several things. The first of which is, it's time to rate this book. All right. How would Uh, you rate this book, my dear? I think I'm going to give it four out of seven, well, maybe four out of eight. Uh, clean turbans. Okay. Uh, it did have a lot of juicy stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thankful for that. However, I am still sick of Minor Profits. I mean, like, as far as Minor Profits go... This has got to be up there, right? It really pulled its weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am sick of reading about how Babylon's going to be destroyed and Judah's going to be restored and blah, 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 blah. 
Okay, fair enough. How about you? I would give it 11 out of 15 myrtle trees. Because. <laughs> would you care to elaborate? No. <laughs> uh, because it's a good length for a little book like this. That's true, yeah. 14 chapters is solid. You can, yeah. do, you can do some good work. It had a nice structure. I like the balance between the first eight chapters of Visions and the back ha- and the back third, sort of like a two-thirds, one-third golden ratio kind of thing. Mm. Um, I like some of the, the wacky Visions. Uh, maybe it's just some of the newfound knowledge that we've gotten uh, from our esteemed academic colleague. Well, he's not our colleague. He's, <laughs> we wish. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But the, the way the visions are interpreted in a political way, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, that's true. Um, but just reading through it on my own, you know, I was sort of like at sea. You know, like these are the myrtle trees and they're two golden pipes with oil streaming out of them. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. It definitely means something. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very meaningful. But... <laughs> indecipherable i like a little mystery but you know it's it's hard to make that my all-time favorite thing and the back section with the oracles and the and the prophecies it seems kind of standard ish kind of stuff Mm -hmm. although like rob said i guess this is a a slightly different idea of the apocalypse than uh, will come after it of course, with the ordering of these books, it's so confusing because he was saying like yeah there's like kind of two apocalypses represented or two like final scenarios represented Mm -hmm. one where everything's great and one where there's going to be a lot of blood (laughs) yeah and the other thing is he was talking about how the the apocalypses get more sort of surreal and strange like daniel Uh uh-huh but we've already read daniel yeah you know so like i wish they had just put these books in order i know then we could get a much more natural flow of how the how the the writing progresses like i was saying the protestant bible the order doesn't make any sense like why ezra and nehemiah were like way at the beginning yeah even though, like, they should be grouped in with it Malachi would, and Zechariah. And yeah, it would really recreate some of the narrative drive that's, defi- that's like, missing from this section. Yeah, narrative drive is not something that they edited the Bible for. <laughs> that's stupid. Yeah, well... You gotta have that. It does seem like that, certainly from our perspective. I mean, from my perspective, I have a fucking master's degree in creative writing, oh, so... Brago, brago over This here. is, like, I mean, that's, like, the most important thing from my perspective, and it doesn't have it, but... But anyway, that's my rating. And awesome. You can s- sit on it. Sit on your rating? Mm-hmm. And ride it to the moon, baby. Oh, wow. I'm excited about this. Uh, okay. Where so, we'll strip it of minerals. Uh, okay. And grow obscenely wealthy. <laughs> I can see no problems with this plan. Uh, shall we uh, get to our juicy listener mail? <laughs> I don't like the way you describe it as juicy, <laughs> but yes. Okay. Should we get to our succulent listener mail? I don't mind that as much for some reason. (laughs) Okay. Our listener, Gabriel, wrote in and said he's a sort of ex-Christian semi-believing mystic, and our podcast is such a fun and honest look on the world's most popular sacred text. I don't know how... I mean, it's certainly our honest feelings, (laughs) but we are not the the be-all, end-all of interpretation. Uh, Yes, we are. Mm, Overruled. Uh... He suggested to us reading other sacred texts after we finished the Bible, like the Quran, Apocrypha, Vedas, Egyptian Book of the Dead, Tao Te Ching, etc., which we're not going to do because we don't know. Yeah, well, we definitely won't do that with, like, the Quran. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Egyptian Book of the Dead. We'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. But we are hoping to figure out something podcast-wise. <laughs> Watch um, this space. 
Also, a listener known only as Terrible Ideas wrote in and said this. I was listening to Nico talk about SMT, that's Shin Megami Tensei, an oh, episode Amos. I thought and then it was Southern Methodist Tuniversity. <laughs> that's a that's the the fishing school, I guess. <laughs> oh. It's a Christian fishing school. <laughs> or or a music school. Tuniversity. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, jingle writing school. Yeah. For Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In episode Amos, and then tuned into the Nintendo stream where an announcement trailer for Shin Megami Tensei 5 or V was playing. Like a coincidence that was meant to be. So is Nico hype or what? We may never know. Spoiler alert, I'm super hype. <laughs> well, okay, we, we do know. Mm-hmm. But we may long. never know. All right. Um, our listener, Emily, sent us a picture of her stepcat, Miss Whiskers. Mm-hmm. Um. And it says that she could use a biblical curse for meowling all the time. She also frequently dishonors her parents by putting her butt in our faces. <laughs> I have attached a photo of her pretending to be innocent. Please help her troubled cat soul. She does look very cute and innocent yep. in this picture. Mm-hmm. But we all know what's lurking behind that visage is unbridled evil. Our listener Curtis wrote in and said, My friend will be moving in with me in the next few months and he is bringing his cat. I figured a curse for his cat would be appropriate since I'm not a huge fan. His cat's name is Aspen. Sounds like you need to have a conversation with your friend. There is a picture. Or with Aspen. Or with Aspen. Some of you have got to get to get together on this. There's a picture of a cat lounging very luxuriously in a bathroom sink. Yeah, I could definitely see the problems with Aspen already. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't be in there. That's a human place. So here's a curse for, for these feline friends. Uh, or mis- frenemies. For, for these feline frenemies. Miss Whiskers and Aspen have built themselves a stronghold. They have heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away their possessions and destroy their power on the sea, and they will be consumed by fire. Wow. Those are some rich cats, I guess. I guess so. I, I mean, they look like it in these pictures. Very fluffy. Mm-hmm. Our listener Ashley also wrote in um, and talked about how she was... Raised religious, kind of picked and chose which beliefs to hold on to, um, and then says, anyway, I can't keep the blinders on anymore, and you guys have helped me face my fears of the Bible by keeping it light, comical, and real. I've learned more about my lifelong religion, using other sources too, of course, in the last four months than I have in the last 24 years. Thank you so much for holding my hand through this. Ashley, I concur. I have also learned more about the religion that I was raised in in the past, well, like, 10 months or however long we've been doing it. Um, And I am so glad to hear from you. Uh, Ashley also sent us some dogs to bless. Um, The pictures are all hilarious. Mm -hmm. There's three dogs, Diesel, Lacey, and Mary Jane. Um, And Ashley says that Mary Jane loves to be squished and hot. So she shoves herself into tight places and sits next to space heaters and fires. I relate very strongly to Mary Jane. I also like to be squished and hot. (laughs) And our listener slash friend of the show slash podcasto slash buddy, former guest. Mm-hmm, uh, General Ironicus wrote in and let us know about an important dog. This is Nora. She always looks this worried. Her she people, does look very worried. Her people are expecting a baby in 10 weeks, and I think a blessing would help her in this anxious time. And so I say to you, Diesel, Lacey, Mary Jane, and Nora... The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of these dogs. 
Those are some blessed ass dogs. I just I have such good hopes for the future of these dogs. Mm-hmm. And we are blessed people because we have such wonderful fans. Hell yeah. Fans who can follow us on Twitter at SunSchoolDrop. Or on Facebook, uh, SunSchoolDrop, or just search for Sunday School Dropouts. You can send in pictures of dogs, cats, or other pets pets, or wild animals that need to be blessed <laughs> or cursed. I guess you could do a wild animal if you have like a raccoon that keeps getting in your trash. As long as you care raccoon. for it and you have an opinion about it. Yeah. Anyway, we'll figure out the details if you send us photos and descriptions to contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol that's also where you can send any questions comments or recipes mm-hmm. recipes for fun <laughs> we thank our friend elise carlton for our logo it's the best part of the podcast the most consistent performer we can week <laughs> um, we also of course i thank nico for his music sound engineering and editing skills with a z you're welcome my dear with a z mm-hmm uh, if you want to follow Lauren on Twitter, she's at at Lauren E. O'Neill. Yep. And uh, I think that's about it for the show. That's about it. Look, we love you all very much. Have a wonderful weekend. And Except it's like the end of the weekend. Keep fighting the good fight. All right. <laughs> we will see you on Sunday. We'll see you on Sunday. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.